Valuations were high before the pandemic hit, and now they're high again. Or should investors go next? Here's what matters. Live from our respective coronavirus social distancing outposts, I'm Lauren Goodwin. And I'm Robert Sarenbetz. And this is Market Matters from New York Life Investments. In this podcast, we strategists at New York Life Investments will share insights from the multi-asset solutions team. What we think matters is we manage investment solutions. That includes Mainstay's diversified portfolio series, including the Income Builder Fund, as well as bespoke solutions for our partners. By sharing perspectives and engaging with you, our listeners, we can all become better investors. Welcome, everybody. It's the week of August 2nd, 2021. And today we're going to dive in the world of private markets. Well, this is a substantial departure. Often on the program, we focus on public markets or the economy more broadly. That is publicly traded securities like stocks and bonds that often make the financial news. But New York Life Investments has a serious focus on other areas of the markets as well. Private markets in particular, meaning the not publicly traded sources of capital that investors use to acquire ownership in an idea or a company to help it grow. I think it makes sense to start there in our conversation today. What is that difference between private markets and public markets? It's a big question, but I think we can boil the answer down to one word, which is access. Public markets are accessible by anyone with a trading account, more or less. Private markets don't have that same kind of accessibility for everyday investors. That creates opportunities for some investors, and we'll get to this topic about liquidity here shortly in the program, but it also creates some challenges for investors. Not everyone will have access to a company's earnings statements, for example. Oh, I see. So in private markets, investors have to work a little bit harder to access a company's financial statements, understand its business plan, maybe understand its value proposition. These companies are a little less well-known kind of thing. So I can already see how the conversation can get very interesting and how there's probably more levers to pull on when you're investing in this space. I guess my big question becomes... If everyday investors don't have access to private markets, why should they care about this? Why are we talking about it on the program? And how do developments in private markets make their way into the broader investment environment? That's a really thoughtful question. And I think there are two main reasons. The first is that while you and I might not invest directly in private markets, we might still be accessing those markets indirectly. So for example, an insurance company or a pension fund may be investing in these markets in an attempt to secure the financial futures of their policyholders or their beneficiaries. Oh, that's a good point and very applicable. So in that sense, we do have access to private markets in a lot of ways. Exactly. And The second reason why I think everyday investors should care about private markets is that we can learn a lot about how investors navigate these markets. We can learn a lot from the folks with their ear to the ground with these companies in private markets. So in my perspective, both public and private markets face the same macroeconomic conditions, but private markets managers may be more involved in the actual business models of these companies and with the management teams. And so it's fascinating to watch and to understand. Wow. I couldn't agree more with what you just said and the dynamic between being a business model identifier and a business model taker, so to speak. I'm going to give you the floor now and bring in today's special guest, who we're very excited to have on the program, 
Chris Stringer is the president of PA Capital, a private equity company that is an important part of New York Life Investments platform. Chris, thank you so much for joining us. Thanks for having me. Chris, let's start with just a few stats or background information on PA Capital. Can you share with our audience just what you do in the space you operate in? I'd like them to be familiar with the lower middle market. Sure. Happy to. PA is a 23-year-old business founded out of a university endowment originally to manage money for institutions primarily, foundations, endowments, pension funds, as you mentioned earlier, insurance companies. We help those those constituents essentially invest in niche markets, private equity, and and also some hedge fund markets to generate consistently attractive returns for their their constituent base. And we manage about $6 billion in assets. Most of those assets are focused on private equity. And within private equity, we're very niche focused. We believe in investing in the lower middle market in North America, growth equity and buyout strategies. And we'll talk about this, I think, today. But uh, why we do that is because in in those parts of the market, we think uh, most of the return comes through an active business building approach, a business building strategy, growing earnings of small founder and family-owned businesses. And we think that's a a durable way to generate returns for our, our clients over market cycles. I think so, and certainly compelling. And you're right, we will come back to this idea of the middle market and the space where you play a little bit later. But For now, I'd like to just stick with what Robert and I were discussing around the differences between public and private markets. So I'd be interested in your perspective on essentially whether we got that right. You know, like what is this question of access? What is the liquidity and why is it so important for private markets investing? Sure. That's a great question. And I think you did get it right earlier. You know, from a definition standpoint, what is liquidity? It's, you know, the ability to convert an investment into cash and to do so at its fair market value. And in the public markets, because Markets are open most days during the week. Investors have the ability to convert their investments in the public markets immediately into into cash in most situations at fair market value. In the private markets, you tend to invest over long horizons. So you tend to invest in private companies, private fund managers over, call it, three to 12 years at a time. So your money is locked up for long periods of time. You can't convert into cash quickly. And, you know, the difference between investing in those two markets really shouldn't be any different. You know, it should be about generating value through nurturing and growing businesses over time. But just the ability to have uh, long duration capital as your base and not to have the pressure of quarterly earnings targets and statements and, you know, mark to market on a daily basis, just it allows for a more active ownership approach when managing private companies. And so it's it's a different way of generating value as a company investor. Well, it's a great point that you're making about one of the benefits of being able to invest in these private markets, at least from an investment perspective. But there are also costs, right? Not everybody can lock up their money for that long of a time, even if they did have complete access to these markets. And from my understanding, at least in general terms, investors used to be rewarded pretty heavily with what we call the liquidity premium, meaning the premium you would get over risk-free or near-risk-free assets for essentially the, the effort of locking up your capital for a longer period of time. And that benefit of private markets seems to have declined over time. You know, Is that what you're seeing? And, and why do you think that is? Certainly, I think we've seen that holistically. You've seen average private equity, private markets returns approach average returns in the public markets more so over the last several years than you had if you back up several decades. I mean, the main reason for that is is really the private equity and private markets have matured and they've grown substantially. And so 
what ends up happening is the investments with all of this growth in the private markets, the type of investing, the size of company that's being invested in, it, it starts looking a lot more like the public markets. And so those, those markets have converged to some extent, both from a capital standpoint, as well as the type of businesses that are being invested in. And so the premium for being in the private markets, uh, the liquidity premium at least, you know, should be purely for locking up your capital for a long period of time. I think folks are seeing what they're calling a reduction in the liquidity premium really is more just a capital flow dynamic and the fact that the types of investing in the both markets are starting to look the same right now. You know, if we think about both markets, theoretically, you should have a mark to market on a daily basis in a company, whether it's public or private. But, you know, the, the private markets don't mark their companies to market on a regular basis. There's that flexibility to be an active manager. And it's interesting, you'll see in recent times, all kinds of examples of you know, large public companies choosing to go private just to get away from that, that daily quarterly pressure from the public markets, being measured from a valuation standpoint, having to, uh, you know, having to, to deal with that. You mentioned cost earlier, the cost of being public from a regulatory standpoint has increased uh, more in recent times. You explain the closing of that distance between public and private markets. Besides the regulatory cost of public capital access, is there anything that's changed about the private capital markets that might make them more attractive for investors or for companies looking for financing? Private equity's matured a lot. If you go back to the 1980s, there were a dozen or two firms focusing on private equity and venture capital, you know, a few billion dollars under management. Today, you know, there's over 1.3 trillion for one of the charts in, in one of your recent pieces of, of dry powder in the private equity industry. And, and that's doubled since 2006. And so there is... Um, you know, it all comes back to rates in a lot of ways and macro macroeconomic policy, monetary stimulus. You know, low rate environment has really pushed a lot of investors that institutions that are focused on generating a statutory return for their uh, their constituents. It's pushed them into strategies that are going to, for them, they think generate a consistently attractive return over cycles and meet a seven or eight percent statutory return hurdle. And, and private equity's done that historically and done it without as much variability as the public market. So you just see all this money coming into the into the space. And it's been a really interesting dynamic. It used to be um, if you needed a billion dollars to grow a business, the public markets were your only option. And now, you know, that's that's not the case. There are numbers of private equity groups that can write checks of a billion dollars or more to help grow businesses. Well, I think our listeners can hear why we love catching up with Chris and why we invited him on the program. He not only provides these really insightful perspectives, but also plugs our insights to you without me even asking. The piece that Chris mentioned, which is available on our website, newyorklifeinvestments.com, talks about these dynamics around public and private markets and liquidity. And one of the concepts, Chris, that you and I discussed when we were putting together that piece had to do with just the all the different levers of value creation that investors have to navigate an environment, any environment really. And if, if I pull out my MBA textbook or my CFA materials, you would learn that investor return is a combination of factors. It's, you know, what can you get for the risk-free rate? What is the risk that you get for essentially taking on equity risk, the equity risk premium, that idea that not all securities are in fact risk-free? Then there might be a little bit of uptick in return as well for locking up your capital for a little bit longer. That's the liquidity premium we talked about. And all three of these 
are at least perceived to have been getting smaller. Certainly interest rates have been moving lower. The compensation that investors receive for taking more risk in fixed income and equity seems to be moving lower. And so investors have to rely on other levers of value creation to generate portfolio return. So if it's not any of these things you and I discussed, then they might instead be leveraging what we call the business risk premium, really digging into what are the actual levers of value creation that a company has or a management team has to generate return. And so I'd love to hear you know, your perspective on that and what investors can do, what they are doing to access that business risk premium? No, that's a great question. I think um, if you think about components of return, there are several that are just a function of macro and, and some that are more a function of micro and manager skill and individual company investments. And, and you're exactly right with obviously the risk-free rate, equity risk premium, and the liquidity premium. It's a function of, of the macro of, of where rates are and where capital flows are, are going, as we were talking about earlier. I think that particularly in environments we're seeing right now, prolonged low rate environment, high per, you know, we've seen essentially all of those macro dynamics in, in the building blocks of returns create very high purchase prices for investments these days, whether it's a public company and where, where public companies are trading or you know, private markets businesses. There's nowhere to hide from high valuations right now. And I think what that's creating is low margin for error, no matter where you invest. Um, I think what it is causing investors to do or should cause investors to do is to lower their return expectations on a go-forward basis, unless you assume rates can still go lower, which we all know would be a difficult thing to do mathematically. Or, you know, we may stay low from a rate standpoint over a long period of time. Capital flows may still come into the private markets or the public markets and, and keep valuations elevated. But you know, long story short, I think everyone needs to grapple with the concept of not looking in the rearview mirror. I was reading a Buffett quote earlier just about how clear the rearview mirror is relative to the windshield in business. And um, certainly that's the case in investing. How are your teams at PA Capital thinking about that challenge and how to focus on the, the front windshield, so to speak? You really need to, when you invest right now, think about how value is created. And all value is created, I think, investments in investments via a combo of the macro and the micro, but what can you control? And in our view, you know, we'd rather have a larger portion of investment return in areas where we're investing right now come from the micro and come from, you know, this concept of business risk premium, or, you know, can we invest where, you know, most of the return comes through consistent earnings growth versus, you know, essentially trying to time momentum from a macro environment standpoint or make a prediction about rates. And so, you know, really thinking about trying to find places where investment returns come through skill-based earnings growth is an important thing to think about right now. And then, you know, really where you're investing relative to capital flows, because you want to be in markets, particularly where we are in the cycle or seemingly where we are in the cycle with elevated purchase prices and so much cash in the system, you know, you want to be in, in parts of the market with attractive supply demand dynamics. And so you want to be, can you invest in areas of, of the markets where there's a consistent opportunity to invest, consistent demand for investment capital, but structurally too much capital can't flow into that space because, you know, when we're in these monetary, I mean, we're in a monetary policy uh, stimulus experiment right now. And so it'll be interesting to see how it all plays out. But, you know, you want to try to find markets right now that are somewhat structurally limited to how much capital can flow into them. And so if you can buy at a reasonable price via the supply-demand dynamics and then actively build that business, grow it, and, and sell it into a different part of the market, perhaps where there's more capital focused on it, there's a really interesting opportunity. So that those two things are what I would think about, capital flows as well as sort of how value is created when you invest. 
I want to dive deeper into what you're saying about a different part of the market, because one of the characteristics of the New York Life Investments platform, and specifically the New York Life Investments alternatives platform in private markets, is our expertise in the middle market. Now, at PA Capital, you focus on the lower middle market. What's the advantage of that? What we like about it is the consistent value creation opportunity in the lower middle market. And it's because most of, back to my, my earnings growth point earlier, um, our experience over 20 plus years focused on the low-end market in North America would say that you know with the right active managers and in the right companies, there's an opportunity to generate an attractive return despite the macro. You're not immune from the macro. Elevated purchase prices can affect you. Availability of debt can affect you. But you know, you are able to buy into these businesses, systematically improve them, and then sell them, you know, up market in most market cycles. And so that consistent return opportunity has been attracted to us as investors and, and our clients. And it really, I, I didn't give you a bunch of background on, on history, but our firm was founded uh, out of an endowment. Our founder ran a university endowment for 30 years, founded our business on the side, essentially 20 years ago. And, uh, really just embedded in our investment philosophy is this concept of, of wanting to generate consistently attractive returns, not to reach for momentum. And so we've, we've just naturally gravitated towards the North American lower middle market. But you know, if you think about it, university endowments, at least this one where our founder worked, they had to pay 30 to 40% of the school's budget each year from the investment returns. And so it was very important not to make mistakes. You needed to generate a reasonable return over long periods of time. That was the way to, to generate success versus really reaching out on the risk spectrum when, when things were hot. And so, you know, that investment philosophy is really central to everything we do. Focus on mistake avoidance, you know, try to generate consistent returns. What you're saying about generating consistent returns throughout multiple market cycles, and I imagine different stages of each market cycle, and not going after momentum, that, that's really resonating with me. We've experienced a very momentum-driven market in the last year, and so this slow and steady approach feels particularly relevant. So how does the middle market opportunity look today? Can you describe how a private equity investment process looks specifically for the middle market? Low mid market essentially is businesses based in, in North America. They're typically founder, family-owned companies, entrepreneurially driven businesses. Average business we invest in is about 25 years old, worth about $50 million from an enterprise value standpoint. So they middle market and low, lower middle market, these are businesses that have you know critical mass. They're, they're strong, profitable businesses. Usually these call it 50 to $150 million businesses we invest in have 15 to 20% EBITDA or cash flow margins. So they're profitable, but they've been owned privately before, usually by a founder, a family, or an entrepreneur. And there's a one-time opportunity in investing in these businesses to come in as an institution to pay a fair price for those businesses, then to systematically build those businesses to a point where they can you know, gain the attention of a much frothier, much wider, much deeper end market with bigger buyout firms or you know, the public markets. So if you can, if you can buy these founder owned businesses, transition them into institutionally owned larger companies and sell them up market, there's an opportunity to make a very attractive return despite the macro. And, you know, the way that value is created in these companies quite often is, you know, I mentioned supply demand dynamics earlier and paying a fair price. Um, I think there's very little opportunity in private equity anymore to make money on the buy. And you're always paying a fair price for business, but the 
The nice thing about the Lohman market is there is a significant investment opportunity. You know, we talk about death, divorce, and generation shift being the fuel for where we invest. You have generational transition in businesses, institutions like PA Capital and, and our partner fund managers come in and we pay fair prices to come into those companies and then systematically build out management teams. So you're making investments. I want to pull out a nuance that you're expressing here, which is that there's a difference between flipping a business and developing a business. Private equity gets a bad name often in the press for adding debt to businesses relative to what they would be in the public market. So more leverage and financial risk and then slashing costs and and making money that way. That's not what the low man market's about. It's about business building. So you're investing in the management teams. You're growing the management teams. You are perhaps buying some competitors. You're usually investing in equipment and or service offerings to broaden geographic reach within these businesses. And so when it's done well, you can generate very attractive return for that effort, but it's a lot of effort and you really do need managers with quite a bit of skill to do it. Can you give us an example to bring that to life? This won't sound exciting, but the return will. We... Um, We recently had a uh, pet food business that we invested in, regional business, founder-owned for a number of years. Private equity firm that we backed came in, paid about $50 million for the business, and then very systematically built out the management team, new CEO, uh, new head of uh, product safety, went ahead and invested many million dollars that weren't available with the the founder owners into increasing the manufacturing capacity of this pet food manufacturer, and then added to the sales and marketing staff to very systematically think about how they brand themselves, how they uh, go direct to consumer over the internet, et cetera, got distribution into a broader set of retailers, They were able to grow the business from 8 million of of earnings to almost 50 million of earnings. And then they sold it to a very large private equity firm and made 17 times our money over six years. And so, you know, a venture capital-like return, taking a very regular way business, but just investing in its growth. So they don't all work that way. We have our fair share of losses, but, you know, with the right managers, it can be an attractive space. To close us out here, I'll just summarize some of your key points about private equity, which is that... One, we have to respect the macroeconomic environment as investors, but in private markets, there may be more opportunity to leverage macroeconomic developments and to add value to an investment portfolio. And then two, focusing on that microeconomic piece makes the middle market or lower middle market really interesting because there may be more room for genuine business growing. This has been a very interesting conversation. Chris, thank you for joining us and sharing all your insights and knowledge in this space for us today on the program. You're welcome. Gosh, isn't he great? I just love catching up with Chris. But coming up next, it's Jobs Week. And as Chair Powell of the Federal Reserve said last week, we'll be watching closely for improved participation as a marker of what they call, air quotes, substantial further progress towards their goals. And it's also earnings season as it continues. I'll be looking for individual reports and anecdotes of how companies are dealing with some supply chain headaches. Taking a lesson from some of the things we heard from Chris today. I love it. Well, that's it for today. We'll be back next week for more Market Matters. Let us know what matters to you. If you have a question or a topic of interest, let us know on social media. That's right. You can send us your questions or highlight what matters to you by finding us on LinkedIn. You can follow our views on our website. That's newyorklifeinvestments.com and click the insights tab. Yes. And as Chris said, our insights are excellent. Until then, I'm Robert Sarenbeds. <laughs> and I'm Lauren Goodwin. See you next time.
Our podcast is produced by Milo Benamont, and our music was composed by the fabulous Zach Young. I'll now read our disclosures from compliance. For more information about Mainstay Funds, call 1-800-624-6782 for a prospectus or summary prospectus. Investors are asked to consider the investment objectives, risks, and charges and expenses of the investment carefully before investing. The prospectus and summary prospectus contain this and other information about the investment company. Please read the prospectus or summary prospectus carefully before investing. There is no assurance that investment objectives will be met. Past performance is no guarantee of future results, which will vary. All investments are subject to market risk and will fluctuate in value. This material represents an assessment of the market environment as at a specific date. It's subject to change and not intended to be a forecast of future events or a guarantee of future results. This information should not be relied upon by the reader as research or investment advice regarding the funds or any issuer or security in particular. The strategies discussed are strictly for illustrative and educational purposes and are not a recommendation, offer, or solicitation to buy or sell any securities or to adapt any investment strategy. There is no guarantee that any strategies discussed will be effective. This material contains general information only and does not take into account an individual's financial circumstances. This information should not be relied upon as a primary basis for investment decisions. Rather, an assessment should be made as to whether the information is appropriate in individual, in individual circumstances and consideration should be given to talking to a financial advisor before making an investment decision. This presentation has been provided for educational purposes only and is not intended to constitute investment, legal, tax, or accounting advice. There's no guarantee that any of the strategies discussed during this presentation will be effective. In addition, the presentation does not constitute an offer to sell or a solicitation to buy investment advisory products or services provided by PA Capital LLC or New York Life Investments Alternatives LLC. Investing in our products and services involves risks and should be only undertaken after carefully reviewing the relevant offering materials and conducting an assessment as to whether such strategies are appropriate for individual circumstances. Any past returns discussed in this presentation are not indicative of future performance. During this presentation, forward-looking statements were made, which are predictions, projections, or other statements about future events. These statements are based on current expectations and assumptions that are subject to risks and uncertainties. Actual results could materially differ because of various factors discussed in this presentation. The offering memorandum, as well as unforeseen events. We do not undertake any duty to update any forward-looking statement made during this presentation. PA Capital LLC is a majority-owned subsidiary of New York Life Investments Alternatives LLC, a wholly-owned subsidiary of New York Life Insurance Company through New York Life Investment Management Holdings LLC. New York Life Investments is both a service mark and a common trade name of certain investment advisors affiliated with New York Life Insurance Company. New York Life Investments is both a service mark and a common trade name of certain investment advisors affiliated with the New York Life Insurance Company. The mainstay funds are managed by New York Life Investment Management LLC and distributed by NYLIFE Distributors LLC, 30 Hudson Street, Jersey City, New Jersey, 07302, a wholly-owned subsidiary of New York Life Insurance Company. NYLIFE Distributors LLC is a member of FINRA SIPC.